0: WDBM. An
1: exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM.
0: You're listening to Impact Exposure.
2: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is
0: Impact Exposure.
1: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, the World Health Organization has decided that cell phones might pose a risk of brain cancer in humans, according to NPR. The finding that cell phones are a possible carcinogen is a bit of a surprise. Only last year, the WHO organized a study of cell phone risks that was the largest conducted to date and found scant evidence to support a link between cell phones and brain cancers. But a group of 31 experts from 14 countries conducted a review of the scientific literature and determined that the evidence, though limited, could support a connection between cell phone use and brain tumors, cancerous gliomas, and non-cancerous acoustic neuromas. In national news, U.S. military prosecutors have filed new charges against self-described 9-11 mastermind Khalid Shalik Mohammed and four alleged co-conspirators held at Guantanamo Bay, reports say. All five defendants have previously been charged at Guantanamo over the attacks, but the charges were set aside as the Obama administration tried to move the trial into U.S. civilian courts, a move which was reversed in April, according to the BBC. And in Michigan News, a new study says a single parent in Michigan with a preschooler and school-aged child needs to earn more than three times the state's minimum wage to be economically secure, according to the Associated Press. Wider Opportunities for Women and the Michigan League for Human Services released the report today. The study says the wage earner in that family of three needs to earn about $52,000 a year with benefits to cover child care, housing, health care, transportation, savings, and retirement. A state report says nearly six out of 10 jobs expected to be created in Michigan through 2018 won't enable a worker to earn that much. And on Exposure tonight, we'll be talking about a study released by MSU that showed that exposure to arts spurs creativity in the economy. We'll also be talking about be a tourist in your own town, as well as Lansing Old Town and how it revitalized itself, as well as how Detroit could do the same. But in the studio, we'll be talking with musician jill jack she'll be performing at Pumpstock music festival it'll take place in bailey park in east lansing this saturday welcome to the show jill jack thank you for
3: having me i appreciate it
1: so i hear that you've recently been on tour with bob seeger <laughs>
3: yes how was that, that sounds funny i mean it just sounds so surreal it was about as surreal as it sounds um it was a dream come true the venue was huge uh you know and everything was storybook we we did our sound check and bob sat down and listened to our sound check and then came in Uh, we were at the palace and called me into his dressing room and said how about going to london with me in six days Uh, you know he, he liked what we did and um just great i mean i was ready i was happy and the band was on and and we rocked the house it was great
1: how'd you get that gig
3: well a lot of lobbying that's for sure i mean um I have people who know his people and then um, basically walked into their offices and said, you guys need some estrogen on this bill. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, you know, they know who I am. They're not, um, I've been in Detroit and uh, major, major musician in Detroit. I've won the most Detroit Music Awards and, um, you know, definitely got the attention and they know I have a great fan base, even that night the fan base i asked you know how many people are jill jack fans here and there was quite a few and then i asked how many jill jack virgins were in the house and there was quite a few of those too (laughs) so by the end of the night everybody we were all one one big happy family so it was cool so
1: have you been performing in detroit your whole life
3: yes yes um i've been at this now for 20 years i have my own record company i have seven cds out working on my eighth and Traveled, um, you know, I, I do everything from acoustic solo to full nine-piece band and um, love what I do. It's a lot of work. Uh, you need a lot of perseverance and you have know, taken a lot of shots, but, um, you know, I, I, I'm not me without it. So, I, unfortunately, it's a curse sometimes, but um, I keep doing it
1: till I can't do it anymore. How would you describe how Detroit's music scene has changed over the past 20 years? You
3: know, I, I have seen it evolve for sure, um, but the great thing about being a Detroit musician is it is a melting pot, and, and I think that that's helped me write what I write. I write all my own material, and, you know, people say, well, you know, what do you write? Is it country? Is it folk? Is it, you know, and that's what, you know, it's Americana, and and I truly think that that has come from the blues, from the Motown, from the you know get right down to folk um you know i think it's all influenced me so i think though the community has really grown and worked together where it kind of used to be a dog eat dog when i first started working you felt like everybody was kind of step on each other but now i see it more as a group team effort and it's really cool that we all try to support each other now because it's a tough industry you know so without further ado would you be willing to perform a song for us sure i'll do a a song because we were talking about northern michigan earlier so i'm going to do this song i wrote this on torch lake and there's nothing like being on the lakes in michigan and this is actually i've gotten emails from new zealand and all over uh europe people are like we want to come to northern michigan now after they've heard this song so here we go
4: again the ride. Guy in the crowd screams with the laugh, cries and they carry the chairs and coolers back home and the crickets play the violin wings and the children still believe in dreams and there's not one single person feeling alone Northern Michigan, full
1: of light. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is Jill Jack. She'll be performing at Pumpstock this weekend. It is an outdoor music festival featuring. American roots music it'll take place on Saturday from noon until six p m at Bailey Park in East Lansing, so Jill, where do you usually perform
3: everywhere? <laughs> I don't live it myself, and I definitely don't stay in one place very long. Um I think I try to reach out as much as possible and um my daughter's in college now, so I actually could get out and hit the road. Actually, the minute she went to college, I went to Europe. So, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, I was playing all along, all over the place, but I, you know, I didn't want to tour too much. You know, without her, when she was little, we tossed her in the back and she came with us. But, you know, as she got older, she wanted a life, too. I kept trying to talk her into staying on a tour bus, but she wasn't having it. Um, but so, you name it, if you look at my website, jilljack.com, I'm scheduled from here to 2012 and uh, just... 2012? Um, wow. Yeah, actually, and there's somebody already booked me for 2013, so... <laughs> but it's good. It's, it's what I love to do, and... um seems to get all types of age groups and, uh, I just, um, happy,
1: happy that I can continue to do it. And where can people find you this summer?
3: This summer, like I said, go on my schedule, um, I don't know it by heart. I pretty much look for the week and then know where I'm at, but we'll be touring. We'll be also in Nashville, um, this summer. And, um, I'm hoping that, Seeger goes back on tour in the fall and that we get that opening slot. So that's, that's one of my things, but we'll, we'll be all over the place. Memphis, you name it, we'll be there.
1: How was, how was performing for Bob Seeger? I mean, was, I mean, do you think that you'll be able to do that connection again and and perform for him?
3: Oh yeah. I mean, I hope so. They, the management was extremely happy with what I did. And, And one of the reasons they said it was because I wasn't making it all about myself. They said that I was so excited that seer was playing and that w- that I understood my job my job was to get the crowd going and if they liked me you know, during that period of time that I did a double duty I did, you know, for myself, that was great. And obviously for Seeger, we got them pumped up and they were ready to roll. So,
1: so, I mean, I think when I think of Bob Seeger, I think of Michigan and you just sang your song about Northern Michigan. Uh Um, and you're saying you're going, going on tour. Do you generally like to stay within the state or do you like to branch out?
3: Oh, I definitely like to branch out and more and more. I mean, Michigan has been so supportive of my career. That's the only reason I've been able to stay in it is because they've supported, they show up at every show, we sell out, we do well, and they buy my CDs. So it's it's phenomenal. But, um, you know, obviously your fans want to see you grow, and you want to see yourself grow and hit markets so that you don't get so comfortable. It's great to sit in your backyard and have people applaud, but when you got to go out, like when we played London with Seeger. You know, I said, Dorothy, we ain't in Kansas no more. I mean, these people didn't know me from Adam. And so I had to really rock it out. I had to prove myself, you know, because it was, they'd never heard any of my material. So it's important for me not to get comfortable. Challenge and facing fears and really getting out of the box is how I live my life. And um, I, I, th- I would get stale. It wouldn't, it wouldn't do me any good to just stay in Michigan, not at all. But I love Michigan, and I do a lot for Detroit. I wrote a campaign for Detroit this year. Uh, it's a commercial called um, "I'm a Believer," and uh, we do um, a lot of charity work. And we do—I get my fans out there. We were painting fire hydrants and cleaning up the city. And uh, I work with the choirs in Detroit, and just really trying to support my city while still getting my feet wet in other
1: states. So. That's excellent. Well, in the studio is Jill Jack. She'll be performing at Pumpstock. It is an outdoor music festival featuring American Roots music. It'll take place Saturday from noon until 6 p.m. at Bailey Park in East Lansing. Jill Jack, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's really nice to meet you, Emily. Thanks for having me.
5: You're listening to
1: Impact Exposure. Exposure.
5: now back to
0: impact exposure
1: you're you tuned to impact exposure i'm your host emily fox msc released a study that showed that exposure to art spurs creativity in the economy in the studio we have a panel of guests to talk about that study welcome to the show everyone hello thank you, thank you. so to start off can we go around and introduce yourselves and what you do I'm Leslie Donaldson, I'm the
0: Director of the Arts Council of Greater Lansing.
5: Rex Lamar with the Center for Community and Economic Development here at MSU.
7: Amber Perusky, I'm an Undergrad Research Assistant at the Center for Community and Economic Development. Hi, I'm Megan Van Dyke, I'm also an Undergraduate Research Assistant at the Center. So, I guess the first question I have would
1: probably be best for Rex Moore if you want to answer it. It's just talk about this project. Why did you want to do a study like this, and what did you find?
5: Well, the center is focused on trying to help rebuild Michigan's economy, particularly in the globally competitive economy that we're in. In 2005, we did a baseline study looking at the cultural economy in terms of as a direct employer. More recent work has looked at culture and creativity as an attractor of the creative class, innovative entrepreneurs that are, um, generally responsible for the globally competitive jobs in the world, like Google-type things. And then this particular study wanted to see if arts and culture was also a contributor to that creative capital, the capacity to create new businesses and to invent new products as patented by, by patented ideas. So we wanted to see if there's a relationship between participation in arts and crafts and the, invent, the invention of new products and the formation of new businesses.
1: And what do you mean by arts and crafts? I'm thinking like Girl Scout camp right now, but I don't think that's probably what you mean. We didn't
5: ask that particular <laughs> variable, but we did look at a whole set of variables ranging from uh, drawing and poetry to the performing arts to the creative arts to crafts like sewing. And there was some, how many, 36, yeah. 37 variables that we looked at yeah. So quite a few individual activities that people attribute to an arts and crafts activity.
1: And what did you find from this study?
5: We found that, in fact, if you participate in arts and crafts as a child, as a young adult, and continue as an adult... In studying honors college grads of MSU from 1990 to 95, looking specifically at STEM grads, science, technology, engineering, and math grads from MSU, that in fact, yes, you were more likely to be generating a patent or starting a business than those who didn't participate in arts and crafts. And who also graduated from MSU in 90 to 95. So the research suggests that there is a, seems to be a correlation between arts and crafts participation and, again, what we're calling creative capital, the capacity to start new businesses and invent new products.
1: So you looked at people that graduated with science related degrees. Why do you, th- do you think that, why study them when, what do you think it would tell us if someone that. Gr- graduate with an arts degree? Would they create more businesses or patents? Why don't you look at, at those degrees as well?
7: Um, well, specifically, we were looking at the sciences because um, the initial research that the Root Bernstein's were doing was um, with scientists and how they think and how they do arts and crafts. So, um, and we are currently saying engineers as well, so they kind of branched out to the other sciences.
5: Professor Ruth Bernstein is a faculty member here in physiology who has been studying uh, Nobel Prize laureates and looked to see what is the—he calls them polymaths. They're individuals who are a Nobel Prize laureate in chemistry, but they're also a poet. And so this work really tries to extend that concept. You know, Nobel Prize laureates are the pinnacle of our creative understanding. And does this phenomenon of the combination of the arts and inventiveness— permeate down through other layers of the population and so this is our first Mm -hmm. effort to get into that
1: and i understand from the research i think around 250 people you were able to get access to in email and you only got response back from 85 do you think that's a big enough sample to be able to come up with a an answer to this question
7: Um, well that is a good question and um we had a was that about 30% return rate, which is actually pretty typical of a research project like this, so it's not bad. And um, we hope that it's big enough, and we thought it was big enough to write the report.
1: Now, Leslie, I also want to bring you in the conversation here. You're with the Arts Council of Greater Lansing. Um, I, the article that I read that, that introduced me to this study, um, it talked about how um, Michigan has, in the past decade, has,
0: has cut arts funding by 90%. Um, is, that, is that true? That is true. Since 1974, I mean, we're at the lowest funding levels at, this, at the state level. Um, and so that is certainly a challenge. Unfortunately, we've seen this disinvestment. Um, kind of over the years, uh, we were at $25.2 million in 2002, and then just this year we're at two mil- just over $2 million for the entire state. So that is the, s- the situation that we're faced with right now. However, um, at the same time, there's a lot of good conversations about how the arts play an important role in economic development. And how have
1: you seen those cuts um, let's say just in the Lansing area, how has that affected the Lansing area as far as seeing those cuts um, within the budget for for arts funding?
0: It's definitely been challenging to a lot of our our organizations. We actually serve the Tri-County region, about 140 arts and cultural organizations, and we've really seen the capacities cut quite a bit in all of the arts organizations and a lot of them have to have had to come up with creative ways to continue to function and and different kinds of collaborations to continue to help them uh, move forward unfortunately we've lost a couple of arts groups as a result of it and um, you know many of the leaders at the state level also um, told uh, the state legislature that this is you know potentially what is going to be seen as this disinvestment continued to happen over time
1: so, having seen this study or know about it, what what was your reaction when you when you heard about this study that's going on at MSU? Well,
0: I think it's fabulous because I think it adds um, yet another tool to our toolbox to really talk about the importance of um, arts, arts and culture in everyday lives, and the importance to have access to the arts. Um, the concern that we're having at this point is from the federal level to the state level on down is that we're seeing these these tremendous cuts and definite impact um, to arts, and arts education in particular, especially for those that are most vulnerable, um, so those that you know really cannot normally afford access to the arts. That's why um, programs and activities such as those that we have in the Greater Lansing community, like our festivals, for example, allow, uh, allow um, different options for um, people of all ages to, and backgrounds to have access. And I'm, I'm also curious
1: with the study, how much of the people exposed to arts and crafts, crafts activities? Was it in the school environment, or were they extracurricular activities
7: we looked at, for childhood and young adult, we asked them if they had it in school or if they took private lessons or if they had informal um, mentoring or self-taught. And across it, it was just very varied. They had it at all different places.
1: Now, I'm curious, having known that 90% of um, arts funding was, has been cut over the last decade, and your your study looked at um, people that graduated From 90 to 95, they weren't affected by that cut. Do you think that those numbers may be different today, looking back now at the exposure to arts and crafts activities and how it may lead to people developing patents or businesses? Do you think those numbers would change now that we've seen arts fundings cut here in
5: Michigan? Well, that's what the findings suggest. Uh, To the extent that this is a strong correlation, if you do not have exposure as a child and continue it as a young adult and as as a mature adult, then uh, the probability that you would be uh, inventive either through a patented product or start a business would be diminished. So I think that there would be a concern. We chose that group 90 to 95 because we felt that that would be a long enough period That those graduates would have an opportunity to show themselves in the world, as you might say, and so that that was the reason we picked that. So another study in twenty years might validate if, in fact, we see a reduction in the number of patents and businesses started.
1: And why study honors college graduates?
7: Actually, we did that for um, a pretty specific purpose. Um, We looked at they all have the same admission. Criteria. Criteria. So, uh, you know, it's a certain ACT, a certain percentage, and then um, they were all the same age and had gone through school at the same time and been exposed to about the same thing. So it was kind of just um, trying to limit the variables. I see. And I'll
1: open this question up to everyone. How do you think that Michigan can keep the arts accessible during these times that we are facing more budget cuts?
7: Oh, well, that's a good question. And um, we were just thinking or looking at this new um, art in the workplace idea where adults can become um, involved in the arts with pretty low costs and they, um, you know, might have music in the workplace or, you know, painting, drawing, something like that. And that's a really good program. And how do you incorporate that into the workplace? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I don't know. It would have to come from the top down. Like we were noticing a couple, like, Uh, I think Google and maybe Xerox are starting to do that right now. Um, And they just encourage people to become involved in the arts in the workplace, and it really does, I think, like, uh, encourage, you know, creativity.
0: One of the things that we're working on with our two cities here, City of East Lansing, City of Lansing, MSU is a major part of this, is the Cultural Economic Development Plan for our region. And we're taking a look at... um, as trends in the workforce have diminished just generally, um, it seems that there's a growth in the creative sector. So the flip side of it is, is that um, that's an exciting thing for us to take a look at. And how do we foster that innovation, encourage that creative, those creative businesses and that creative activity to occur, continue to occur in this region? So, um, you know, we're just getting started with all of that work, but we're, we're really seeing some positive results.
5: You any last comments, Rex? And well, I think the, the question that we're all struggling with is uh, how do we provide an environment if we're going to Uh, invent our way to prosperity. You know, we're in a globally competitive environment. We're competing with everyone on the earth. If we're going to invent our way to prosperity, how do we create an environment that supports that inventive creative activity? And this seems to be one of the characteristics of that. So the question might be, do we want to be poor or do we not want to be poor? And if we don't want to be poor, this may be an important element of it.
4: Well,
1: in the studio, I have a panel of guests to talk about how MSU released a study that showed that exposure to art spurs creativity and the economy. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us tonight. Thank Thank you. you.
5: You're listening to
1: Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
5: Tuesday nights from 8 until
6: midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on
5: Impact Primetime. Now, back to
1: Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. Be a Tourist in Your Own Town will take place in Greater Lansing area this Saturday. To talk about the event is Brendan Dwyer of the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau. Welcome to the show.
8: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So this is the 17th year you guys have done this. Absolutely. Talk about the history of Be a Tourist in Your Own Town. How did it start and
8: how was it evolved? It's a great question. Um... To be honest, uh, when something gets to be this age, the, the way that it starts off almost starts sounding like legend, but within the Greater Lansing CVB, the story has been told to me thusly. Um, someone got off a plane at the Capital City Airport, and they got in a cab, and they were here on business, and they said to the cab driver, um, so I've never been to Greater Lansing before. What's going on in Lansing? What is there to do? And he said, nothing. There's really nothing going on. And the person was like oh, okay, and they shared that when they got to their business meeting, and the area residents that heard that were like, wow, we cannot have that kind of negative reception. Um, Our area residents have to become advocates for the community. They have to be Educated at the assets that we have and all the things there are to see and do. Um, You know, no, we're not saying that we're Orlando, Florida, and Disneyland is not right around the corner, but I bet you anything, you would be surprised. All there is to see and do in Greater Lansing when you look into it and when you, when you have it all presented before you. So what the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau has done with Be a Tourist in Your Own Town is put together a passport, um, and in it are over 60 different attractions that you can go to on June 4th and uh, explore the whole community for a very low fee. You can, you can ride around the town on CATA and go into all these different attractions and learn for yourself all there is to see and do.
1: And what are some hidden treasures in the greater Lansing area that many people may not know about?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Things that you may not know of. Um, out in Hazlitt is a really cool little winery called Bergdorf's Winery. And uh, it's a neat little spot. You can make wine and taste wine and things like that. Um, let's see, downtown Lansing, there is a Paramount Coffee Roasting Facility. So all these coffee beans come in from all over the world and are roasted for all these different companies there and they show that how they do that and all these different things like that. Um, there's going to be also kind of a little bit more traditional recreational activities going on to like, um, boat rides on the grand river downtown, which you can do if you work downtown, you can, they have like lunches on them and different things you can do. You can check that out. Um, obviously the Lansing city market is totally, totally new reinvigorated that's something that people can check out um all kinds of art galleries um every every all of them in town basically have their doors open that day um you know so there's everything from bowling and you know fun time parks which is like mini golf and different stuff like that to a little bit more cerebral things like the michigan historical museum um lansing auto history tours you know we have a ton of great automotive history in greater lansing That's something that people can kind of get into and explore. Um, Then, of course, there's Impression 5, Potter Park Zoo. Um, Right here on MSU campus is the Bug House, which is a really popular stop. So there's insects from all over the world that you can look at and handle if you feel the inclination. Um, Obviously, the State Capitol building. So literally, you can go on and on about all the things that there are to see and do. And their doors are open to you that day from 10 to 5.
1: And do you know of other towns in, in in the nation that do an event like this?
8: There are a few other towns that have kind of followed the formula. I think Indianapolis does one. But um, the Convention and Visitors Bureau is really proud of this event. We've really nurtured it along over the 17 years. And, um, you know, from the first year we did it, there was just a few attractions to now, like I said. It's like pushing 70. Um, We've really bolstered it and made it something strong and big that we're really proud of. Um, Get the word out to our residents. And really, you know, with your listenership, the students, you know, we consider them residents for the time they're at Michigan State. They're a part of this community. Um, We want them to get out and explore Lansing. You know, um, the world does not stop at the end of MSU campus. You go a little further and you can find a lot of neat things to see and do. And then go ahead and invite family and friends to come check those things out.
1: Are there any special events that are going on this year that may not have happened in previous years? Like I know last year, I think they in, they started over the edge.
8: Yes, um, today or the, June fourth is also the second over the edge event, which is a pretty neat thing. This is the last year that the Team Lansing Foundation uh, will be doing the event. That's the charitable arm of the Greater Lansing CBB. Um, so, what people will do that day is um, they will rappel down the side of the 23 story Boji Tower downtown Lansing. So, that's Lansing's tallest building. Um, so, you, people will be doing that. Now, last year, all you could do was go and watch that because those people that were going down the side of the building had months in advance registered for that and raised funds and things like that. This year, we have enough openings that we're um, offering some day of rappellers should they have the funds to do so. So, all the information. You you can, find out, um, you can find out more at www.lansing.org, and that's about the Over the Edge event as well as Be a Tourist in Your Own Town.
1: Well, in the studio is Brendan Dwyer. He's with the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau. He is here to talk about Be a Tourist in Your Own Town, which will take place in the Greater Lansing area this Saturday. Welcome to the Earth. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's my pleasure. And last week, Lansing's Old Town Main Street District was named one of the top five 2011 Great American Main Streets in the nation by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Later in the hour, we will talk with the Old Town Commercial Association about this award. But up next is a feature I did last year that traced how Old Town has evolved over the past three decades. On a cloudy Saturday morning, the streets of Old Town Lansing are mostly empty. One family gets their poles and bait out by the fish ladder. Proust's pets is alive with the sound of animals. And musicians test out their skills at the music store, Elderly Instruments. The historic buildings that line Turner Street and Grand River Avenue are filled with shops and businesses dedicated to art and culture. David Such of Such Video, a video production company, gives a tour of his office space in Old Town.
6: All right, this is our uh, lobby, and uh, what's significant about this is uh, this building that we're in right now was built in 1927, and when uh, in 98 when we moved in here we knocked away this plaster and we found this hand-painted billboard.
1: On the wall is an antique advertisement for Nutella butter, it is a glimpse into the history of Old Town and the phases this building has gone through.
6: It's most recently before it it is what it is now. It was a furniture store. It was called Estes Furniture. Anybody who's over forty in this town would remember Estes Furniture. But they had this whole big block. This building here was used to be a post office because there's a stamp safe in the basement. Like there's a a place like a fire room where you could put stuff. And I think it was a dance hall at one point.
1: Such a space has been renovated into a hip and artsy studio filled with his and his staff's artwork and design. I
7: really like these paintings.
6: Thanks those are mine, actually.
1: However, Such's building, along with all of the other structures in Old Town, didn't always look this alive. Such describes what his building looked like when it was bought in the late 90s.
6: And then when we moved into the block, boarded up, soaped over windows, nothing in any of these buildings... I remember my partner and I looking in through this piece of glass right here and I said to her, this is either the dumbest thing we've ever done or the smartest thing we've ever done and I'm not sure which yet, so.
1: Such says Estes Furniture was the last business to leave Old Town during the time of decline.
6: I mean, when Estes moved out of here, for instance, everything was empty. There was a like a little trashy strip club down there. There was a little bar over on Turner Street called the Mustang, which was kind of wild and crazy. But it was it was just like a, a place you didn't go at night.
1: Terry Terry, one of the leaders who revitalized Old Town and president of Message Makers, a multimedia production company in the district, said the area used to look like a ghost town.
6: When the Capitol was built, this area still was vibrant, it still continued, but in the 50s and I think the 60s mostly. Things really started falling apart, you know, with suburbs and people moving out of the urban areas, and so it just uh, deteriorated.
1: Before the capital was built, Old Town was downtown Lansing. Terry bought his office in Old Town in 1981 and was one of the first to move into the area after Old Town deteriorated. After Terry moved to Old Town, he helped establish a few art galleries, and soon an arts community started to emerge. Such found glimpses of that artistic community in his building, it reminded him of the time when the only businesses in Old Town were a bar and a strip club.
6: And I think there were some illegal raves down here, and artists moved in here, but they were like squatters. The, the space in the basement was like a little studio, because I found this table down there that they'd been using to paint stuff on. It's just this big, huge table that's just caked with paint. And I found a few signs down there that were just, like, hand-painted. It said, Party this way. It's, It's just kind of like, you know, they were doing some stuff down here.
1: In the 80s, Terry wanted to get many people involved in the process to revitalize Old Town. Terry helped put together creative forums to address the issues Old Town was facing. One of the first meetings drew over 70 people from universities and organizations across Michigan.
6: You know, we did some cool things like we, you know, we talked about common values and we built a sculpture of old bricks and we carried them around to our meetings and some meetings we drew pictures instead of talked.
1: Bonnie Sumbler, who has been involved with Old Town's growth over the years, remembers those first meetings.
9: That was very cool. That idea of Turning this area that was the history of where Lansing started and building it back to some place that was a destination point was our dream, but it had a long way to go.
1: To make Old Town a destination point, Terry and his team started putting on events in the area. The first event was a snake rodeo. I mean, snake is
6: a simple transformation, so we would do stuff on the street. We'd have, like, music, and all the artists would submit things with, snake
9: imagery in it.
1: Sumbler remembers how the Snake Rodeo made Old Town look
9: transformed. We actually put big paintings up over the boards that were boarded up on the buildings, and it just changed the street totally. So it didn't look desolate anymore. You know, when people started to really see the beauty of buildings and knowing that they needed to be reclaimed, taken care of, brought back from near dead.
1: During the mid-90s, after the community's efforts to revive Old Town were being noticed, Old Town received a grant. The grant was from the National Trust for Historic Preservation for a Main Street Program. The Main Street Program is a model to help communities revitalize an urban area through volunteer efforts. The Main Street program was one of the turning points that helped bring Old Town back to life with the help of Terry and his team. Since then, Old Town has been able to be sustainable through the arts. Now 70% of the district's funding comes from events put on by the Old Town Commercial Association, including Festival of the Sun and Moon and Oktoberfest. Those events help bring in 700 volunteers annually. Brittany Hoskew is the director of the Old Town Commercial Association, which was created to manage the Main Street Grant. Hoskew says Old Town has come a long way from where it was two decades ago.
10: I mean, I don't think it's any big secret that there was a lot of um, crime in the area, and I think that that's something that we continually struggle with, is is trying to re-educate people about, you know, right now Old Town has one of the lowest crime rates in the city, but, you know, there's... It's still very fresh in people's minds, you know, the time when it was a 90% vacancy rate as opposed to a 5% vacancy rate. But, Hoskue says, a city needs to have a brand and a focus in order to be successful. And at the time when we were really defining what Old Town was, it was artists and hookers and thieves. And you know what are you going to brand yourself as? Well, we, you know, Old Town is through and through the arts and entertainment district of of Lansing.
1: Hoskew says that art brand has helped bring hundreds of volunteers into Old Town to help it become the lively place it is today. Like Detroit, Old Town was once a place
10: in heavy decline, but it took a brand to bring it back. Part of what 700 volunteers are really behind was a district, was an identity, was a sense of community, was a brand. And I think until Detroit or any other urban community can really utilize the Main Street program, they really need to to start looking at districting or creating that brand for the for the people to get behind. You know, people want to be proud of where they're from. People, people want to do good, and people want to feel like they're part of something. So if we can create that for them, just like old town created this arts brand for people to get excited about they will commit their time they'll commit their their talents to it and so maybe you know for the stadium district or downtown or maybe it's an agricultural community or maybe it's an extremely diverse community or maybe it's an industrial district that really has like you know great industrial buildings or something you know whatever that brand is they need to tap into that and i see that for lansing and i and i think that that would be the same case for like detroit or something
1: it is that art brand that makes Old Town business owners like David Such volunteer his time on a Saturday morning to show off his renovated space in Lansing's historic Old Town.
6: So this is, uh, as I call it, the money the building. Again, we knocked off all the plastering here and got, got down to the brick. And, uh, and like the other side, this was totally wallless on this side. And, you know, you just look at the craftsmanship of, of, the, of the 20s, and I just think of the guys that, that were just pasting these bricks up. And it just, you know, it like takes me there. As far as I'm concerned, it's, it's like being a part of it. So.
7: For
1: Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. Again, I'm your host, Emily Fox. So last week, Lansing's Old Town Main Street district was named as one of the top five, or one of the five 2011 Great American Main Streets in the nation by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. And to talk about this award is Brittany Hoskew, again, from the Old Town Commercial Association. Thanks so much for joining us again tonight. Thank you. So talk about this award, and what does it mean for Old Town?
10: Um, well this is an award that was given to us by the, um, the National Main Street Center um, over in Washington, DC. And this is really saying that the past 15 years of volunteer hours and ideas and vision and um, you know hauling, hauling dirt and flowers and, and dreaming for Old Town has, has uh, been recognized on a national scale and that we're moving in the right direction. Um, It it was a great experience.
1: So talk about some of maybe the other cities that also received this award, and and how would you compare yourself to the other cities?
10: That is a really good question. That's something that not many people have asked me so far. And, um, you know, it was a little intimidating. It was a little intimidating standing up there. They recognized five communities, like you said, and... um, you know standing up there they have these big budgets and these big cities and these um, and these big projects that they're doing um, and when you strip away kind of where they're coming from so their budgets and their um, and and all the other things that make them the great Main Street programs that they are and you just look at their their growth statistics for their neighborhood so what they've been able to accomplish in the same amount of time um that kind of reaffirmed why I was there and and it made me feel a little a little more secure about standing in front of all those, all those people, thousands of people and other, other professionals in the industry and say, yeah, I, we belong to be here. Old Town belongs to be at this table because not only have we been able to accomplish what they have done and more, but we've done it with less money and more volunteers um, and hopefully more successes in the future.
1: Now let's dive a little more into what the Main Street Program is. It's not necessarily they don't give you money, but, right. they, but what do they give you to, to get to where Old Town was able to you know become
10: so um, it's really interesting actually. Back in the 70s, um, the National Trust for Historic Preservation was spending a lot of money on bricks and mortar for historic buildings. Um, they really wanted to see those buildings standing in the future, and so they would fix a window or you know what, do tuck pointing on some brickwork or things like that. And what they found was, is you can't just address one piece of the puzzle, that you have to look at it holistically. This the same thing with a community, you have to look at it holistically. And so, what they did was um, you know, instead of just spending money fixing that one building, um, you would find a successful business to rent that building so that someone was paying the paying the landlord in order to continue to maintain that, that property into the future. And then you also addressed um, the marketing and festivals and events in order to draw the people to the district. So that there was people to spend money at that business, so that business could then pay rent and so on and so forth. And so, um, what happened in the '70s, what what was really developed as as a historic preservation tool, turned into a successful holistic approach to downtown development. And now, you know, fast forward to 2011, um, chamber of commerce, downtown development authority, city governments. Nonprofits, anyone who is in community and economic development, is starting to adhere to this approach, this um, this incremental and holistic approach to economic development, because they're seeing what great return on investment is happening by. Um, instead of mandating change, really providing the tools to create change. So what we receive from the state and national Main Street program is education and services, you know, time with an architect or time to train the volunteers on how to do things like a community garden or how to run a successful visioning session with your board of directors or things that we can utilize in the future that are going to give those to- those volunteers the tools to, to, to keep that historic building standing and a whole lot more with a lot less money.
1: So when I did this feature story that we just aired a few minutes ago, um, I did this story about almost exactly a year ago, and I remember right after I did the story, there was a ribbon-cutting in Old Town for 13 new businesses that came to the area. And I was like, wow, 13 is a lot for Old Town. It's just this, you know, it's a small little area, but, you know, there's a lot going on. How many new businesses have come to Old Town in the past year um, since you know, let's say May of 2000.
10: Right. I couldn't tell you exactly how many have moved in since the last time we spoke, but I know last year um, when we were putting together our annual report, we listed 20 new businesses in the district. And so that is, I mean, it's, that's great for us. And, you know, we do a lot in the way of recruiting new businesses to the area, but we do, we also do a lot in the way of, um, of business retention as well, so it's not about how many rib- ribbon cuttings you can have, though the pre- the press and you know likes those numbers. Um, it's also about how you can sustain those businesses into the future to so to then create another job and another job and give another artist an opportunity to to show their work and things. So, um we try and provide pro- programming in both of those areas, just business recruitment and business retention. So, how successful have those businesses been so far? You know, all all of them are still alive and kicking, you know, we had a we had a few go obviously. You usually have an, a net amount of businesses that open in a year and so we had we unfortunately had to see a couple go, but a majority of them, the vast majority, is, are still doing well, and, and they found their family in Old Town, and, and we're happy to provide the support, not through the OTCA, but the other their neighbor businesses down there. You'll see them providing their time and talent to their neighbors just the same, and that, that makes me really happy to see.
1: So talk about some upcoming events in Old Town that we should look out for this summer.
10: Well, so you're talking to me in just the right time because this month, June, is a crazy month in Old Town. We have probably an event every single weekend. So this weekend is Chalk of the Town. Um, on Saturday, First Friday, we have activities all over the neighborhood for First Friday. Um, on Sunday is First Sunday Gallery Walk, which is the first Sunday of the month. All the galleries are open with hors d'oeuvres and things like that, and a new exhibit. Um Next weekend is uh, Michigan Pride, which has just recently moved to Old Town the past couple of years and has been a great addition to our lineup of festivals and events. Um, then we also have Scrap Fest, where we have 18 teams of, of artists from around the country coming in to pick scrap from Shredla- Friedland Industry Scrap Yard up to 500 pounds and then build something out of it. That has been a free event to to check out the sculptures, and I, it's it is definitely becoming one of my more favorite events in the neighborhood and led by david such which Le- we heard Led by david such who was in the previous um previous recording yeah he's he's amazing the stuff that comes out of his brain man it's it's awesome and so you know he's like well, wouldn't it be cool if we went and had a scrap competition and i just kind of looked at him like oh boy here we go <laughs> so to see works. See what these people pull out of a scrapyard, and then two two weeks later, what they bring back to the festival to put on display um, is is pretty amazing. And then, of course, Festival of the Sun and Festival of the Moon on June 24th and 25th. That's a big one.
1: Well, in the studio is Brittany Hosky of the Old Town Deve- or Old Town Commercial Association, excuse me. And she was here to talk about the award that Old Town recently received. They received... Um, The 2011 Great American Main Street um, Award by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Brittany, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. And for more information, you can go to iloveoldtown.org.
5: You're listening to
0: Impact Exposure.
5: General, we've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't
8: know, sir. We've just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. The Impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny.
5: That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tappingest tapping music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir.
6: The Asian
8: invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10 on... I'm- the
1: Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Prime Time, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
6: Thursday nights from ten until two a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the Mid-Michigan area.
7: Only on Impact
5: Prime Time. Now back to
0: Impact Exposure.
1: You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host Emily Fox. We were just talking about how Old Town revived itself, and for this week's Michigan Storytelling segment, it features John Gallagher. He is the author of Reimaging Detroit: Opportunities for Redef- Redefining an American City. Welcome to the show, John Gallagher.
2: Hi, Emily. How are you doing?
1: So, give us a little intro to what is this book about.
2: Well, I've been a reporter for the Detroit Free Press for going on uh, 25 years now, covering urban redevelopment, and for a long time that meant covering all the big uh, sort of showcase projects, the Renaissance Center, the stadiums, the casinos. And um, in the last few years, uh, I and and a bunch of other people have come to see that really it's more about um, dealing with vacant land, that that Detroit and many other cities, St. Louis, Cleveland, Flint, Saginaw, were not going to ever – sort to come up with a magic formula to get back to where they were in the 1950s, in Detroit's case with 2 million people and all the factories humming and all that, that, in fact, was going to remain a smaller city for many, many years to come, decades to come, and that we have to sort of take a whole different approach. It's not about showcase projects. It's about coming up with a way to be a uh, smaller but better, more sustainable, greener city, and so that's really what the book's about. It's not about how Detroit declined. It sort of it takes its current uh, position as a given and says, "Where do we go from here?"
1: So, by covering urban redevelopment in Detroit for the Free Press, what were some of the most interesting stories that you covered regarding your beat?
2: Well, I think it's really been um, since I had the, the luxury of you know of a lot of time to look at this. I think the riverfront redevelopment has really been interesting. Uh, you know, when I came to Detroit in the 80s, um, Detroit had all these uh, cement silos and other industry on the riverfront. Now we're building a five mile long riverwalk, uh, you know, waterfront promenade. Um, that's one of the most impressive projects I've seen. Um, I think the emergence of Midtown, uh, where the uh, museums and Wayne State University and hospitals are uh... has been uh... really amazing and i think the uh the emergence of southwest detroit where all the uh, latino immigration is as a really vibrant neighborhood is pretty amazing so i think those three neighborhoods shows that uh... revitalization is possible uh... not always by you know adding huge amounts of new people but simply uh... building on your assets and and being sort of who you are uh... midtown uh... which is the home of, you know the cultural center and the home of students and so on is completely different from southwest detroit which is the site of the Latino immigration. So two totally different neighborhoods, but both doing really well.
1: So I know last year I covered a story about um, urban farming in Detroit. And, I, mm-hmm. and you know, having, having hosted a show and, and you cover issues in Michigan, as I do, um, I've, I found that the people that do stay in Detroit and in the area do some pretty innovative things. Can you talk about some of the innovative things coming out of Detroit that you've been able to, to see and, and cover?
2: Sure. Uh, well, urban farming is pro- probably the one everybody talks about the most, and that's mostly in uh, in the realm of community gardening. That is uh, smaller plots, nonprofit, um, and sort of a nonprofit model, uh, volunteer labor, everybody growing the food to sort of give away to food banks or, or, you know, give away to neighbors free. And the big debate we're having right now is whether we're going to take this vast amount of vacant land that we have in Detroit – and try to do some um, larger scale commercial farming and that's a tremendous debate with all all kinds of complex issues that get involved Um, and we don't know how it's going to come out yet but but there are several proposals on the table now to do larger scale farming not the sort of quarter acre or tenth of an acre plots that you have with community gardening but really 50 acres 100 acres 200 acres at a time so that's very interesting and then we're getting um, all kinds of sort of uh, public art projects and uh, somebody uh, uh, piled up some dirt and made a dirt bike motocross um, course track in in the Corktown district and sort of um, very interesting reclamations of vacant buildings to be art projects or or whatever nonprofit centers. So we're seeing all kinds of ways to address the vacancy in Detroit. The big issue right now is that there's so much vacancy that you really need to come up with some really large scale interventions to make it work, I think, like, for example, large-scale urban farming or reforestation or large solar panel fields. And I think this is sort of an opportunity to reimagine what the city is going to be. As my book title says, Reimagining Detroit, let's sort of not just try to revitalize a little bit, let's try to reimagine what what a city can be.
1: So without further ado, would you be able to read an excerpt of your book, Reimaging Detroit Opportunities for Redefining an American City for the Michigan Storytelling Segment?
2: Sure, thank you. Um, this is from the, uh, the introduction, and it talks about the need to um, accept that Detroit can be a better city, not just um, in spite of being smaller, but because it's a smaller city. So many world-class cities are smaller than Detroit in terms of population. Seattle and San Francisco and Savannah in our own country and Vancouver and Venice and other lands. To trade Detroit's reputation as a Rust Belt failure for the allure of one of those other cities wouldn't be such a bad trade. First, though, Detroit will have to embrace getting smaller as an opportunity, not a curse. That vacant lot we were holding for some hoped-for development, now maybe we can turn it into a community garden to help feed the neighborhood. That eight or 10-lane thoroughfare that no longer carries the volume of traffic for which it was designed, now we can put it on a road diet reducing automotive lanes by creating bicycle lanes, widening sidewalks, and running a transit line up the middle. The streams and wetlands buried generations ago to provide sewers for a growing city. Now we can rediscover these natural treasures, restoring the ecology to create a greener environment that's cooler in summer and healthier year-round. With the auto industry's collapse, we can foster a more entrepreneurial economy, nimble rather than sluggish. With city government broken, we can create new models of local leadership, All these things become possible when a city gets smaller. The challenge is to see beyond the heartache and grasp the opportunity. As Japanese poet Masahidi puts it, barns burnt down, now I can see the moon.
1: Beautifully put. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was John Gallagher, author of Reimaging Detroit, Opportunities for Redefining an American City. John Gallagher, thanks so much for joining us tonight.
2: Thank you for having me.